today with um, this quote, which is, uh, again, from the preface of the 1611 King James Bible. This is talking about God's word. It says, it is not only an armor, but also a whole armory of weapons, both offensive and defensive, whereby we may save ourselves and put the enemy to flight. It is not an herb, but a tree, or rather a whole paradise of trees of life, which bring forth fruit every month, and the fruit thereof is for meat, that means food, and the leaves for medicine. A physician's shop, St. Basil calleth it, of preservatives against poisoned heresies, a treasury of most costly jewels against beggarly rudiments, finally a fountain of most pure water springing up unto everlasting life. And what marvel, the original thereof being from heaven, not from earth, the author being God, not man, the inditer, the Holy Spirit, not the wit of the apostles or prophets, the penmen such as were sanctified from the womb and endued with a principal portion of God's spirit, the matter, verity, piety, purity, uprightness, the form, God's word, God's testimony, God's oracles, the word of truth, the word of salvation, the effects, light of understanding, stableness of persuasion, repentance from dead works, newness of life, holiness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. Lastly, the end and reward of the study thereof, fellowship with the saints, participation of the heavenly nature, fruition of an inheritance immortal, undefiled, and that never shall fade away. Happy is the man that delighteth in the scripture, and thrice happy that meditateth in it day and night. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word of life that you have given to us, and uh, God, we pray that your spirit of life would uh, make it bear fruit in us and take root in our hearts and minds. God, we pray that as we consider your ways and your works to bring us your word in our language, that you would please give us understanding and please fill our hearts with gratitude to you for all your goodness to us, to make yourself known and to make the way of salvation straight for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have uh, come quite a long way in this class. We have begun the class uh, talking about the Bible's own understanding of itself. Uh, months ago, back in September, uh, we started talking about how God's Word came to us by understanding its nature as the inspired Word of God, and as such, it is inerrant, it is without error, it is true in all that it addresses, and it's infallible, which means it's trustworthy. We can trust God's Word. And it is our only authority for faith and life. And then we looked at how the Bible was written by the story the Bible tells about itself. You know, when we begin with Moses, uh, we see in there that God had Moses write things down. And then God had Joshua write things down, and so on. All the way through Jesus and the apostles. Jesus who spoke and his apostles who, guided by the Holy Spirit, wrote down God's word for us. We looked at all of that through the story of the Bible. And then we looked at church history, and we saw how God's word was copied and how God's word was translated in the Septuagint, in the Vulgate, and in many other languages, all the way up to English. The last several weeks, we've spent in the English language. We've talked about Wycliffe, and we've talked about Tyndale, and all the Bibles leading up to the King James Version, which we've looked at the last two weeks. 
the plan this morning is to cover kind of that second wave of English Bible translations. We're talking about how we got the Bible, and as English speakers, we're looking specifically at how the Bible comes to us in English. And there was that first wave right after the printing press in, the, in about 1450, and then Tyndale printed the first English New Testament and some of the Old Testament in 1525. And there were many English Bibles translated in the 1500s and 1600s. And then there was kind of a pause until the late 1800s, and then there's many, many more translations. And so that's the plan to talk about today. And then at the end of the class, I'll tell you where we're going after that. But this is where we find ourselves today. So from the time of Tyndale in 1525 to the King James Bible in 1611, many English Bibles were produced. We only talked about some of them. There were more that were made. Um, and this was kind of the first wave of English Bible translation that indisputably uh, reached its high point with the King James Bible. And in the King James Bible, we have a, a magisterial edition in more ways than one. So whereas someone like Tyndale had to work in a rush the King James translators were able to take their time. We saw in the preface that they said that they did not feel a need to be expedient or fast. You know, they were able to do what needed to be done in their work. Whereas Tyndale only had access to Erasmus's Greek New Testament, the King James translators were able to use an updated edition of the Greek text that was published by Theodore Beza. Whereas Prior Bibles, like the Bishop's Bible or the Geneva Bible, were produced by theologically similar translators, either bishops on the one hand, Anglican establishment, or Puritans who dissented on the other. The King James translators consisted of both of those people, and so there's more of a diversity represented that can kind of hedge against partiality in translation. Whereas something like the Great Bible was largely dependent on just Tyndale or Coverdale's work, the King James translators were able to use all of the English translations that preceded them, and many other vernacular translations. They used the, the French translation, and the Spanish translation, and the Italian translation. In sum, there were several advantages that the King James translators had, which God in his providence used to equip the church for preaching, teaching, and reading for generations to come. And indeed, the, the King James Bible became the Bible for English-speaking Christians for hundreds of years. It wasn't the only one that existed, but it was absolutely and unquestionably the prominent version that Christians used. And it's hard to overstate the impact of the King James, just even on our English, even on our language. There are so many words and phrases that whether we realize it or not, and even beyond the church, just anybody speaking English, there are words and phrases that come from the King James Bible that we use, such as these. Um, to put words in somebody's mouth. Uh, that is from Exodus 4, verse 15. To fall flat on your face is from Numbers 22, verse 31. The phrase, the skin of my teeth, is from Job 19, verse 20. To pour out one's heart is from Psalm 62, verse 8. Sour grapes is from Ezekiel 18, 2, and I think it's also in Jeremiah. From time to time, that that phrase is from Ezekiel 4, verse 10. And there's, there's other phrases like that, that whether we realize it or not, they became just a part of our English language. And they're found from the King James translation. Um, yet, the King James was not thought to be 
perfect in every possible way or without possibility of improvement. We talked a bit about this at the end of last class. At the end of our last class, I mentioned that the King James was revised by scholars in Cambridge in 1629 and 1638. Parliament introduced a bill in 1653 to revise the King James, but they weren't able to finish it because um, Parliament was disbanded a few years later. A significant revision of the King James was completed by scholars in Oxford in 1769, and more were done in the 1800s and 1900s. But most of these updates were, were changes in things like spelling or punctuation or uh, typography. So for instance, uh, the font. You know, we looked at the font of the King James Bible from 1611. I don't think any of us have a, a King James Bible that has that kind of font in it. Uh, other kinds of changes would be italicizing the words that were supplied. They didn't originally italicize them, but they had it in a smaller text. So it's things like that. So if you compared your King James with the original King James, you know, you would notice those kinds of differences in, in the type, in the spelling, uh, and in the punctuation. But for all, even though those kinds of differences took place and those kinds of revisions were made, by and large, the words of our King James Bible remain the words of the King James Bible from 1611. Beyond those revisions to the King James, there was also discussion increasingly, especially once you get to the 1800s, for a more thorough revision of the King James Bible. So uh, Bruce Metzger, uh, just kind of recounting the history, says that as time went on, the need was increasingly felt for a thorough revision of the 1611 Bible prepared by a committee of scholars representing diverse ecclesiastical affiliations. And there were two reasons for considering this more thorough update to the King James Bible. The first reason was to give consideration to the growing body of Greek manuscripts. Now, the Greek manuscripts or the Greek text is something we'll talk more about next week. Uh, but to make sense of modern translations, I need to tell you a bit about it this morning. So remember, from, for the first 1,450 years of church history, the Bible was copied out by hand. They didn't have a printing press until Gutenberg in the 1450s. So when they copied it out by hand, that's what a manuscript is. A manuscript is a text that's copied by hand, right? So you can just break down the word manuscript, and you see manu in the beginning, like manual by hand, and then script, which is writing. So it's a writing by hand. So when we talk about a manuscript, we're talking about texts that were written by hand. And invariably, uh, manuscripts predate the printing press, right? So most of the manuscripts that we talk about are before 1450. So you could have a manuscript, just because you talk about a manuscript, uh, that doesn't necessarily tell you when it was written. You could have a manuscript from the 200s, or you could have a manuscript from the 1200s. There's such a wide range of time that a manuscript could have been written. And you'll remember, uh, possibly, that Erasmus in the 1500s, when he put together a Greek New Testament to be printed and published, he looked at Greek manuscripts that he had available, and he put together uh, a Greek edition. Considering all those manuscripts, he put together a Greek edition that was published in 1516. And you'll remember that he was rather limited in the Greek text that he had access to. So he could only look at a handful of manuscripts, and the, the oldest one was from about the 1100s. So he wasn't looking at any manuscripts that predated the 1100s. And Erasmus' Greek New Testament was revised multiple times by himself, four times in his own lifetime. 
and then many times after him. And each revision included information from more Greek manuscripts. Over the centuries after the King James was produced, more and more Greek texts were discovered. Uh, some of them were very old, and the newly identified texts were not able to be considered or incorporated by Erasmus because he didn't, he didn't know about them or he didn't have access to them. And neither did the King James translators have access to them. And just as a side note, you know, we are still discovering ancient manuscripts. Uh, several weeks ago, as we were discussing the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, we discussed the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you'll know that, you'll remember that the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was hundreds of Old Testament documents uh, that were discovered in 1947. So as recently as 1947, we discovered hundreds of ancient texts. And we talked about how those texts confirmed that the text we have is accurate. Um, it's a wonderful confirmation of the text we have. I came across an article that was published in March 16th of this year that said this. So this is March 16th of 2021. It said that Israel Antiquities Authority announced Tuesday that a four-year archaeological project uncovered portions of the book of the 12 minor prophets, including the books of Zechariah and Nahum. It was the first such discovery in 60 years. So even this year, more scrolls were discovered of, of the biblical books. So some of the texts that were discovered in the centuries following the King James were quite old. So uh, one called the, the Codex Alexandrinus was gifted to England from Constantinople in 1627. That document was probably written in the 400s. So that document alone is probably 700 years older than the oldest text that Erasmus had. In the 1800s, uh, two other ancient documents were discovered, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, which were probably from the 300s. We'll talk more about these specific texts next week. But as these texts were identified and evaluated, many people wanted to take these manuscripts into consideration in a revision of the Bible. So that's the, the first reason, that as more texts were being discovered, people wanted to consider those in an edition of the New Testament. The second reason for a revision was the changing nature of the English language. So the King James was, of course, written in what could be categorized as Elizabethan English that was popular in the late 1500s when a lot of those translators grew up and the early 1600s when they published it. But quite naturally, language changes over time. Language changes over time and over place. You can think about this in your own experience, can't you? You know, so if you used a phrase in 1990, if you told somebody that you surfed the web, they would have no idea what you were talking about. And if you told a kid today, I, I expect that if I told my kids that I surfed the web, they probably wouldn't know what I'm talking about. There's a very limited shelf life for the phrase, surfed the web. And that shelf life was probably about 1995 to 2000. Um, you know, so there's, there's a group of people, we can understand that like phrases and words take on different shapes and meanings over time. And then other words are regional, right? If you've ever traveled, especially to a, another part of the world that speaks English, you've probably experienced this. So when I traveled to South Africa on a missions trip, I had to learn the difference between a boot and a bonnet of a car. I had to learn that when I was offered 
biscuits, uh, somebody was really offering me cookies, and I had to learn the difference between now now and just now. I have lived in northwestern Pennsylvania, where they say you guys, in northeastern Pennsylvania, where they say yoons. I cheer for a team in southwestern Pennsylvania, where they say yins, and I've lived for a time in the south where they say y'all. I still occasionally have to ask John what he means by words like cattywampus. When I moved to the South, I did not know that the locals pronounced Louisville, Louisville, and I did not know how to pronounce Lancaster when I moved here. So the recognition that language changes over time and place uh, was being realized and more and more impressed upon people over time and uh, over people in different parts of the world, right? So, to give an example of someone who is observing this in America uh, was Noah Webster. You've probably heard of Noah Webster. Uh, he's the guy who wrote the American Dictionary that so many of us have used. And uh, Noah Webster, he fought in the Revolutionary War. And he knows something about the English language, uh, particularly in America. In the early 1800s, Noah Webster said this of the King James. He said, its language is in general correct and perspicuous, that means clear, the genuine popular English of Saxon origin, peculiarly adapted to the subjects. That means it, it's well-fitting for the, the audience that it had. And in many passages uniting sublimity to beautiful simplicity. Then he says, in the lapse of two or three centuries, changes have taken place, which in particular passages impair the beauty, in others obscure the sense of the original languages. Some words have fallen into disuse, and the signification of others in current popular use is not the same now as it was when they were introduced into the version. A version of the scriptures for popular use should consist of words expressing the sense which is most common in popular usage, so that the first ideas suggested to the reader should be the true meaning of such words according to the original languages. That many words in the present version fail to do this is certain. So that was Noah Webster talking in the 1820s or 1830s. And in the 1830s, about 1833, he produced his own revision of the King James Bible, where he, he made about 150 updates to it in words that in the 1800s he assessed were either not in use at all anymore or words that had changed their meaning over time, words that people still used but didn't use in the same way anymore. So Webster produced that kind of Bible in the 1830s, and, and there, were other, there were other people talking about this kind of thing, but Noah Webster's the, one of the main guys that we would recognize um, and who also published his own revision of the King James. So those are the two reasons that people were talking about revising the King James, to, to consider the Greek texts that were being identified and discovered and wanting to take those into account, and to consider the ways that English had changed. Uh, but it, even though guys like Noah Webster are working in the early 1800s, it wouldn't be until the later 1800s that significant work would be done to produce a revised version of the King James. And so we'll pick that up in just a second. We're going to talk about some of the, the modern English translations starting in the late 1800s. But I'll pause here uh, in case you have any thoughts or questions.
So, two things that I'll say. One is that we'll talk more about Greek texts next week. So if you have thoughts or questions about that, we'll talk more about that next week. The other thing I'll say next is about what we're going to talk about here. Uh, we're going to talk about modern English translations. And, and what my plan is, is to kind of give us a history of modern Bible translations. We'll talk about how, like, some of the features of those translations and how to evaluate them in a couple of weeks. Uh, but my plan this morning is to give you a history of them. Also, I, I just need to tell you, there are more English translations than we can talk about this morning. Um, so my plan is to talk about some of maybe the, my, my judgment of what some of the more well-known ones are um, and to give you a bit of the history of those. If there's a Bible translation, though, that you're particularly interested in, if we have time, uh, you're welcome to ask about it. And I might know something about it, but I might not. I don't know about every English Bible translation that's been done. Um, but if I don't know, then I'm happy to do some research and uh, try to help answer any questions you might have. So that's kind of where we're going with this next part here. So we're going to talk about the kind of that second wave of English Bible translations. And those really begin in the late 1800s. So we'll start with the revised version of 1885. So in 1870, so when we talk about the revised version, we're still talking about the Church of England. You'll remember the King James Bible was a production of the Church of England. Uh, obviously, that's why it's got King James uh, on it. Um, and uh, a lot of the early English Bibles, you'll remember, the, the story of the early English Bibles was whether they were legal or not, whether they were authorized by the crown or not. And so here in the revised version, we're still talking about the Church of England. So in 1870, the Convocation of Canterbury appointed 52 scholars to review the King James and suggest revisions to improve the text. That committee was advised to make as few changes as possible and to make alterations in accordance with the original King James style. Um, so just as the Bishop's Bible had been the basis for the King James, you remember, just to back up for a second, all English translations since Tyndale have been looking back, right? Tyndale was kind of a pioneer doing some original work. But everybody who came after Tyndale was always looking back at what came before. So the, the King James Bible translators, the first principle of their work was to use the Bishop's Bible and to change the Bishop's Bible as little as possible. So here, the, just as the Bishop's Bible had been the basis for the 1611 work, so now the King James was the starting point for the Revised Version. The revisers were instructed to introduce, this quote, to introduce as few alterations as possible into the text of the authorized version consistently with faithfulness and, quote, to limit as far as possible the expression of such alterations to the language of the authorized and earlier English versions. So some of the archaic language was updated in the revised version, but much of the language would have felt familiar to the King James readers. So the, like these and thou's would still have been present in the King James Bible. And indeed, those, those kinds of words, that kind of language was kept even through other modern translations that we'll talk about. This was the first New Testament to incorporate readings from a wider range of Greek manuscripts. That is to say that the translators did not exclusively consider the Greek that was used by Erasmus or Robert Estienne or Theodore Beza, or that was published later as the Textus Receptus. They also considered readings based on newly discovered Greek texts that were much older than the manuscripts available to prior English translators. And going forward, almost every translation, English or otherwise, would consider all of the Greek texts available and not only the Greek manuscripts available to the King James translators. And again, 
that. We'll talk much more about that next week. The Revised Version was commissioned by the Church of England, as I mentioned, and because it was commissioned by the Church of England, it became the fourth authorized version. So you remember that the Great Bible was the first authorized version, and then the Bishop's Bible was the second authorized version, the King James was the third authorized version, the Revised Version of 1885, is that what I said? 1885 was the fourth authorized version. The Revised Version was initially uh, fairly well-received. Again, a major Bible revision had not been done for hundreds of years, uh, right? So I mentioned Noah Webster's revision, but that was not widely popular. That was uh, some small revisions, relatively speaking, by one man. This was a large production that people knew about and were expecting. It was 15 years in the making. Uh, So it was initially well-received. Two million copies sold in England in a matter of days. 100,000 sold in Philadelphia uh, in the first couple of days, 300,000 copies sold in New York. I was surprised by this. Two Chicago newspapers printed the entire New Testament from the Revised Version when it came out. I wish people would do that today. Um, But despite the initial flurry of interest, it would not take deep roots in pews or pulpits, especially in non-Anglican churches. Um, Charles Spurgeon, who's a preacher, pastor that you've probably heard of in London. Uh, He was a pastor in London when the Revised Version came out. He said that the Revised Version was strong in Greek, but weak in English. And that statement kind of shows shows us some of the, some important things about the Revised Version and kind of what's going on at the time. It shows the importance of the Revised Version and the, the kind of the tension that was left in its wake. So in this statement, you can see that it was not generally appreciated as a fine English translation. It was generally thought to be fairly wooden, uh, hard to read, not, didn't flow very well. Um, but the statement also shows an appreciation for the growing insights into the Greek text. Spurgeon valued the updated Greek text, even though he strongly disagreed about the nature of the text, the nature of the Bible, with some of the people who worked on those Greek texts. Uh, and again, we'll talk more about this next week. Not everybody that's and all the scholars that are evaluating these Greek texts and working on them uh, believe that the Bible was inspired. Um, but despite what those guys believed, somebody like Spurgeon could say, okay, there's value in taking these things into account. Um, so this was the revised version in 1885 was the first to kind of uh, dabble, well, so to speak, in the work of a significant revision. The next major effort still wouldn't come for another generation. Um, and that's why I say dabble, uh, because um, it would still be 50 years later before people tried to produce another one. Um, I have a note here about the American Standard Version of 1901. Uh, this, this edition, uh, the revised version, uh, again, was done by Anglicans in England. They were so kind as to invite some Americans to help. Um, But the Americans gave their input, and the Brits didn't always take their suggestions. Um, So the Americans were like, okay, fine, we'll make our own. Um, So the American Standard Version came out in 1901, and the main difference there is it just has some of the translation choices that the American scholars wanted. Um, it's, It's very similar to the Revised Version. To clarify, this is not the New American Standard Version. Um, that would come later. Um, All right, so then uh, we kind of move down the line to the Revised Standard Version, which um, the the Old and New Testament in full came out in 1952. 
just as a quick side note, sometimes when you look at the dates for these things, as Bibles were translated and published, and this is still the case today, often the first thing that, that gets translated, uh, does anybody have a guess? What's the first part of the Bible that gets translated? The New Testament. So sometimes when you look at dates for things, you'll see different dates. That's because when people are working on publishing a Bible, they'll do the New Testament first, and then they'll probably do the Psalms and Proverbs, and then they'll do the rest of the Old Testament. Um, so uh, the work began uh, on the Revised Standard Version back in the 1930s. And it began as an attempt in America to revise the American Standard Version that came out in 1901. So, um, Bruce Metzger, again, just kind of telling the history of this Bible, said a majority of the Standard Bible Committee, it was a committee that worked on the American Standard Version, decided that there should be a thorough revision of the American Standard Version, and that the revision should stay as close to the King James tradition as it could in light of present knowledge of the Greek text and its meaning on the one hand, and present usage of the English on the other. So there again, you can see those two principles are still at play in translation. On the one hand, considering the latest information that was available about the Greek text, and on the other hand, the developing English language. Those are kind of the two considerations that translators are thinking about as they go. The RSV was a heavy revision of the ASV. So this was a, a fairly significant revision that was made. Uh, it was fairly widely used, but Leland Riken uh, he notes that the Revised Standard Version was not widely accepted among conservative evangelicals because of alleged theological liberalism, though, Leland Riken says, the number of texts where this can be demonstrated is no more than a handful. We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, but I want to give you an example of this now because this is a part of the story of why people were making uh, new English Bibles and new English translations. So some looked at the Revised Standard Version in the 1950s and said, there's some things that are happening in here that aren't trustworthy. So what is an example of that? Well, uh, and if, if you want to open your Bibles, you're welcome to, or I can just tell you. Um, some would go to Colossians 1.14. Uh, in Colossians 1.14, the RSV did not have the phrase, through his blood, referring to Jesus. And that's because some of the older manuscripts that we have don't have that phrase. Um, and then there's the question, well, why would it not have that phrase? And so some people think that the copyist who was copying out Colossians was, had a very similar uh, verse in mind from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, that does have that phrase through his blood. Um, so... Some people would look at Colossians and say, oh no, they took out that phrase. It's still in Ephesians 1, verse 7. Well, as it turned out, that particular change was not a change in the RSV. That change goes back to the, the, Amer the um, what was it, the American Standard Version? Yeah, the American Standard Version, the ASV, uh, from 1901. But some people were looking at the RSV and had these kinds of concerns about it. And again, we'll talk more about these things uh, next week because it's important and it needs, needs to be addressed. One of the other accusations made about the Revised Standard Version is that the translators were communists. Now, the, the Revised Standard Version came out in the 1950s, so you could understand why that kind of accusation might have been made. Uh, so Joseph McCarthy even went so far as to putting a warning in the Air Force manuals about the Revised Standard Version. Um, and eventually those warnings were removed by Congress. Um, in short, uh, Part of the story of these English Bibles, we need to realize, is that some people loved it, some people hated it. Um, 
But the RSV was the next major step in Bible translations, and several translations would follow kind of in response to this. One of those was the New American Standard Bible. So this is the NASB. You may have heard of the New American Standard Bible. That came out in 1971. It was updated in 1995. If you have a, a New American Standard, it's probably the 1995 edition. The preface claims to be following the principles used in the American Standard Version from 1901, but it was not kind of an official revision of the ASV. Um, this is another part of the story, right? But the copyright to the American Standard Version had expired, and so the text was available for revision, and so the New American Standard Bible is a revision of the ASV. It was produced by 58 scholars. It was launched by the Lachman Foundation, which is a Christian nonprofit that promoted Christian education, evangelism, and Bible translation. Um, it's not to be confused with, there, one of the other challenges we have with modern translations is that some of them sound so similar in the name. Um, so the New American Standard Bible came out in 1971, um, which was an evangelical Bible. The Roman Catholic Church came out with a Bible in 1970, one year earlier, that was called the New American Bible. It's like, it is so close. The standard is the only difference uh, between the names. So it's, it's not that. Um, the purpose of the NASB was it, it aimed to combine accuracy and readability. It's, it's well known and appreciated for its pre precision uh, more than for its readability. Uh, it was updated in 1995. That first version in the 1970s still included the these and the thous kind of language. In 1995, that kind of language was updated. Um, by, 19, by 1977, so just a few years after it came out, it was, it was one of the top-selling Bibles. Uh, it became a widely used Bible. The New International Version, which you've probably heard of, came out in 1978. The story of the NIV begins in 1955 with an evangelistic conversation. Uh, this story um, comes from Mark Ward's book, uh, Authorized, uh, which we have in the bookstall. We have more copies of those. Uh, we've been commending that to you. Here's how he tells the story about the origin of the NIV. Christian businessman and faithful evangelist Howard Long was attempting to give the gospel of Christ to another man in a hotel lobby. And as Long read the verses from the King James, the other man grew red-faced and then simply burst out laughing. He told Long he'd never heard such strange English in his life. So Howard Long went back to his pastor, Peter DeYoung, and asked what could be done. He wanted to have the Bible in English, in English people could understand. And it took 23 years, but the NIV was what resulted. DeYoung, Howard Long's pastor, recommended to his denomination that the Christian Reformed Church, that was their denomination, endeavor to join with other conservative churches in sponsoring or facilitating the early production of a faithful translation of Scripture in the common language of the American people. Um, and eventually that was picked up and that's what was done. The NIV was produced by over 100 uh, evangelical scholars. It was initially funded by the New York Bible Society, which is now the International Bible Society. It was attempting to be an accurate, idiomatic, readable uh, translation. And it, it's more known for its readability than its precision. Again, we're going to talk about and compare translations in a couple weeks. Um, Within a few years after its appearance, the NIV became the most widely used English translation among American evangelicals. Uh, it passed sales of the King James in 1986 and is currently the best-selling English Bible translation in the world. In 1982, uh, the New King James Version came out. It was a revision of the King James by more than 130 evangelical scholars that mainly aimed at updating the archaic language of uh, the King James. It still used the Greek text that the King James was based on. This is one of the few more modern translations that, that does that. 
The English Standard Version came out in 2001, so in the late 1990s, conservative scholars were dissatisfied with the Revised Standard Version from the 1950s um, and felt compelled to update and revise it. A team of more than 100 scholars used the RSV from 57 as a base text and then updated and revised the text based on the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. So this is kind of a, um, this story comes from Philip Reichen, who worked on the ESV. He was one of the, on the translation committee. He says the English Standard Version began, began with discontent over both the, the content and style of modern English Bible translations in the dynamic equivalent tradition. In particular, the translation committee wanted a more literal translation than most of the versions produced during the 20th century, combined with greater stylistic flair than the essentially literal NASB provided, as well as more accuracy than the New King James Version possessed. The committee took the RSV as its starting point. The entire Bible was subjected to comparison with the original text, and the committee ended up changing about 6% from the RSV text, more than originally envisioned, chiefly because of the propensity of the RSV to amend. That means um, speculative uh, corrections that the RSV translators would make, uh, kind of fixing the Greek text. We'll talk more about these things. Um, he says a notable feature of the translation process was that the entire oversight committee of 12 members met in full for all deliberation on spade work done by specialists, with literary interests fully represented at the table at all deliberations. The result is the highest possible degree of consistency and unity throughout the Bible. The preface of the English Standard Version states that the ESV stands in the classic mainstream of English Bible translations over the past half millennium. The fountainhead of that stream was William Tyndale's New Testament in 1526, marked, marked its course where, marking its course were the King James Version of 1611, the English Revised Version of 1885, the American Standard Version of 1901, and the Revised Standard Version of 1952. In that stream, the faithfulness to the text and vigorous pursuit of precision were combined with simplicity, beauty, and dignity of expression. Our goal has been to carry forward the legacy of this ge for generations to come. To this end, each word and phrase in the ESV has been carefully weighed against the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek to ensure the fullest accuracy and clarity and to avoid under-translating or overlooking any nuance of the original text. The words and phrases themselves grew out of the Tyndale King James legacy and most recently out of the RSV with the 1971 RSV text providing the starting point for our work. Archaic language has been brought into line with the current usage and significant corrections have been made in the translation of key texts. But throughout, our goal has been to retain the depth of meaning and enduring quality of language that have made their indelible mark on the English-speaking world and have defined the life and doctrine of its church over the last five centuries. So that's the English Standard Bible. For the sake of time, I'll let you know that this year, another Bible translation came out called the Legacy Standard Bible. This was produced by the Master's Seminary, where John MacArthur presides. Um, and the Legacy Standard Bible is an update of the New American Standard Bible. Um, and it's coming out this year. It may have already come out. Uh, I think the New Testament's out. Um, so just some summary thoughts. All these translations, or the vast majority of them, were produced by committees. This was not one guy doing this. And you can find out who those people were. They're, they're published online. If you go to the English Standard Version website, esv.org, you can see a list of all the people who worked on the ESV. And the same for other Bible translations. And if you're interested in any of those in particular, usually the preface to them uh, explains a lot about their own history and methods. And those are usually, again, available online. So here I'll pause. This is kind of a lot of info. Um, if you have any questions uh, or thoughts about any of the things that, that I've been mentioning, 
Uh, I'll, we have about a minute or two for any questions, and then I'll let you know where we're going next, and then we'll be dismissed. So any thoughts or questions? Yes, Ginger. Yeah, I have not heard about the Granville Sharps rule since I was in seminary class so many years ago. It was like five years ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, uh, and some of the things like, I don't know if we'll get to talk about it, but you mentioned begotten. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of ink that's been spilled on that word and what that word means. Um, and we'll talk about this, but sometimes different translations can help us realize that there's some thinking that needs to be done about that word. Yeah, yeah Barry. Yeah. The shortest uh, thing that I would want to say about it is it, it has to do with the definite article, and it has to do, especially I think with John 1.1, 1, 1, um, and uh, whether Jesus is the God or a God. And um, the Granville Sharps rule just looks at how Greek is used and affirms for us that even though the definite article is not there, that Jesus is still the God. Yeah, Bob. Mm -hmm. Not in this country. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. So there's a couple brief ways I could explain that. The King James not is not copyrighted in this country. The King James is copyrighted in England. Uh, if you're in England, you can't just willy-nilly go printing the King James Bible. There's only a few publishers that are authorized to do that. The way I think about copywriting, there's a couple thoughts. One is that copywriting, as far as I understand it, is a way to ensure that the laborer deserves his wages, gets his wages. Um, so the very fact that copywriting exists and that people use it for Bible translations. I think the best uh, kind of most generous way of thinking about that is that it's a way of ensuring that the people who put in the hard work to do that translation um, earned the wage that they labored for. Not everybody who works on these translations get paid. We talked about this before. The King James translators were the first translators who got paid for their work. 
And there, Robert Barker, the King's printer, paid 20,000 pounds, which was a lot of money back then, for exclusive rights to print the King James. Today, you know, the RSV that was printed, that was created in 1952, those translators were not paid. Um, today, you know, there are some that are copyrighted and some that aren't uh, because copyrights have expired. Um, I have seen interviews uh, with some of the people who have worked on these translating committees. Um, I, and you can watch those online or you can read about them. Um, it's really hard to be able to, um, in my opinion, it's hard to be, uh, to conclude that there's bad actors without knowing them. Um, or to conclude that they're doing it for the money without knowing, um, without having evidence to conclude that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I see here. And there are some things that are worth our time and attention that, well, at this very moment in time, we don't have time for, but are definitely worth thinking about and talking about. And one of the challenges is that, again, um, I don't know of, off the top of my head, I don't know of any translations, either, even including the King James in England, depending on where you are, that aren't connected to these kinds of issues. Um, so I'm happy to talk with you more about it, though, or anybody else who wants to talk about these things, I'm happy to talk about for now, uh, I'm going to pray briefly, and then we'll be dismissed. If you have children upstairs in the classes, um, we do not have children's classes during the morning service due to a series of unfortunate events. We still have nursery, uh, so you can, uh, if you have kids in nursery, they're still good. Uh, but if you have kids in the upstairs classes, um, we'll need to uh, go get those kids. So let me pray. God, we thank you so much uh, for your love for us and for your word. We thank you that we have your word in our language. Pray that we would treasure it even as we worship now. Help us to receive your word with humble hearts and with uh, gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.